Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 376, The Trinity, The Deity of Christ, and The Best Craig, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear the second and final part of my response to two recent episodes of Dr. William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith podcast. Now, the third clip they play is an exchange you've already heard on this podcast, so I'm not going to repeat it for you, but basically... Craig says, Tuggy, how could you misunderstand me so badly in this book? You say that none of the book's authors defend the New Testament as truly Trinitarian, but that's exactly what I mean. And my response is, well, I know you think that the authors think your little so-called biblical Trinity to claims, but that's not enough for a view to count as Trinitarian. I had been comparing two explanations of what is and isn't in the New Testament. One is that they think one God is the Father— and that neither the Son and Spirit are fully divine. I called that you. And I compared that with T, which is a thesis I think is endorsed by most Trinitarian scholars. It's that the New Testament authors assume the one God to be the Trinity and the full divinity of the Son and the Spirit. In other words, the New Testament is implicitly Trinitarian. It really just kind of obviously implies the Trinity, even though they don't use that word, even though they don't put it that way. So I'm going to skip the exchange and give you Dr. Craig's recap of it from the recent podcasts. To understand this exchange, we need a little background. In my essay, I describe or defend what I call the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And this is a very simple doctrine that has two tenets. Number one, there is exactly one God. And number two, there are exactly three persons who are properly called God. Now, it astonished me that in light of my essay, that in his closing statement, Tuggy would then say that none of the authors in this Four Views book defends the position that the Bible teaches or implies the doctrine of the Trinity in any form. And I was shocked to read that because this is exactly what I believe and exactly what I argued in my essay. So my question was, how could you have so seriously misread me as to say that none of the authors in this book believe that the Bible teaches or implies the doctrine of the Trinity? And what he does is to disqualify my view as a Trinitarian view. He says, oh, well, your view isn't really Trinitarian. It doesn't count. Right. And the reason it doesn't count is because the view just disqualifies itself by how small it is, by how few claims are in it. It's just two sentences. One is just monotheism, that there's one God. Then secondly, it's a linguistic claim about the word God, presumably the ancient words that we translate as God, that those words are properly applied to each of three persons. Now, Dr. Craig seems to think that this expresses a view about a tripersonal God, and I pointed out, oh no, it doesn't. How on earth do you start with those two measly claims and have that imply that there is a tripersonal God? Dr. Craig, I'd like to see the proof. Start with those two claims, add something in that's self-evident below it, and show me how you get a tripersonal God out of those two claims. As I point out in the book, you could be a modalist and think this. It doesn't tell you what a person is. The modalist can say, I believe in persons. They're modes of God. There's one God and there's three persons, each of whom is properly called God. Sure, some modalist can give that an enthusiastic thumbs up. You could have an ancient subordinationist like Origen. There's only one God. Check. He thinks that's the Father. There are three persons who could be called God. Well, actually, he thinks there's more than three, but among them are the one God, and then the second greatest being, which is this logos that's eternally generated from God, and then there's the third greatest being, which is not as great as the Son, uh, God's Spirit, and each of those is properly called God in his view. Not with exaggeration, not using a metaphor, no. He thinks they're all divine to some extent, to some degree, 
The Father is autotheos, he's divine in himself, he's God through himself, and he gives a portion of divinity to the Son, or the Son participates in him to some degree, if you want to put it that way, and something similar happens with the Holy Spirit. So there are degrees of divinity, only God has it independently and fully, and he could easily, someone like that, affirm Dr. Craig's measly two sentences. So you can laugh that I say this isn't a Trinitarian view, but I think most Trinitarians will actually be on my side, as I said in the session. And as I pointed out in the session, that statement doesn't even mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all those two sentences say, the Father, Son, and Spirit are over here, and the three persons who can properly be called God are over there. That's a silly omission. Well, that's what you get when you try to minimize it down farther than you really should. I also pointed out in the session that there's nothing about a tripersonal God there, and there isn't. It's neither explicit nor, as best I can tell, is it implicit. And I can't account for the fact that someone as sharp as Dr. Craig thinks that those two sentences say something about a tripersonal God. Honestly, I just think he's going too fast. I don't think he can give the proof that I mentioned. Okay. So what he does is he decides to quote my encyclopedia article, thinking that this will show me up. That I'm just being ridiculous and inconsistent or maybe disingenuous in saying this isn't a Trinitarian view. And I said, well, now, how can you say it's not a Trinitarian view when it meets the definition for the doctrine of the Trinity that you yourself give in your article on the Trinity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. If you read that article, he says that the doctrine of the Trinity is commonly understood to mean that there is one God who exists in or as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's exactly the view that I defend as being taught in the Bible. Nope. <laughs> and so Tuggy's response is to misquote his own article. He says, what I say is, the doctrine of the Trinity is popularly understood. And I corrected him. It, it's not, you didn't say popular. You said this is the common understanding hmm. of the doctrine of the Trinity. And he tries to back away from it. But in fact, if you read the encyclopedia article, this is the operative definition he uses throughout. He never backs away from that definition or tries to qualify it. So I think he is being very disingenuous in trying to disqualify uh, the position I defend as a Trinitarian view. Now, I don't think my answer there was very good. However, being disingenuous was not my problem. My problem was failing to think quickly enough on my feet. So, look, there's nothing weird about saying that if your theology doesn't mention or imply anything about a tripersonal God, then it can't count as Trinitarian. That's the signature idea of any Trinity theory that there's this triune or tripersonal God. If you don't mention that, you're not yet in the realm of Trinitarian theorizing. I knew there's not going to be anything in my article that's going to help him. Thinking too quickly on my feet, I thought, well, look, how is just this basic introductory statement at the top of an encyclopedia article going to help you, given all the things that I just mentioned? Right. So I kind of pushed back a little bit on that. But what I should have done is I should have said, Bill... No, the bit of the encyclopedia article you just read involves the idea of a tripersonal God, and your two sentences don't. At least that remains to be shown, sir. There's something else annoying about this interaction and this discussion on his podcast, which is he gives you the notion that Tuggy has this understanding of what the doctrine of the Trinity is, and he sticks to this through his whole encyclopedia article, but he doesn't like that this lets my view in, so he's just kind of lying here. There's something mega misleading about that way of putting it, never mind the charge of being disingenuous, which isn't true. Let me read you a little bit more of that article. I'll read you the part that he quoted, but then I'm going to keep going. This is how my Trinity entry starts in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. A Trinity doctrine is commonly expressed as the statement that the one God exists as or in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? 
His sentences fail according to that definition on two counts. There's no tripersonal God idea in there, as best I can tell, and it doesn't mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Now let me read you the very next sentence. Every term in this statement, God, exists, as or in, equally divine, person, has been variously understood. The guiding principle has been the creedal declaration that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the New Testament are consubstantial, i.e. same in substance or essence, Greek homoousios. Because this shared substance or essence is a divine one, this is understood to imply that all three named individuals are divine and equally so. Yet the three, in some sense, quote, are, end quote, the one God of the Bible. All right, so the whole point of that introductory paragraph is that there isn't one doctrine of the Trinity. There are standard formulas that are understood in a bunch of different ways. And these are discussed at somewhat brutal length in the rest of the encyclopedia article. So Dr. Craig wants to carry on as if there's kind of a simple you know, definition of any Trinity theory. Well, there are standard sentences, there are standard formulae that you have to account for, that you have to provide an interpretation of. But actually, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't one theology. It never has been. This is a basic thing that everybody's known about my work for a long time, but it's not a thing that you would know if what you know about Tuggy's work on the Trinity is what Craig and Harris tell you in these podcasts. So, yeah, anyway, I'm not disqualifying his view in some arbitrary manner. It doesn't count as a Trinitarian view because it doesn't say anything or even clearly imply or presuppose anything about a triune God. You just need more content than that, Dr. Craig. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Dr. Craig's use of the word properly help with these problems? What Dr. Craig is imagining is that somehow the word properly will come to his rescue here. Here's what Kevin Harris says. Yeah. And Bill, you point out that you're saying the New Testament says that there are three persons who are properly called God. And that's a distinguishing characteristic there, uh, properly called uh, God. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yes, that's right. In the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism, there are exalted quasi-divine figures like angels or even the Jewish king who could be called Elohim, God in Hebrew, the same word. But this is not an ascription of deity properly speaking to these figures. It's metaphorical or, or, or figurative. When I say that there are three persons that are properly called God, what I mean is something like truly and literally called God. And I say that specifically to differentiate the attributions of deity to Jesus Christ in the New Testament from the hyperbolic use of um, the word God for principal angels or exalted patriarchs or these other uh, figures in pre-New Testament Judaism. Now, this is something that deserves more discussion and more exploration. In my view, the lesser New Testament uses of the word theos are neither hyperbolical nor are they metaphorical. They're just established lesser literal uses based on long-standing Old Testament precedent. So God says he'll make Moses a god to Pharaoh. So the words for God in the Hebrew original and the Greek translations are applied to Moses, those to whom the word of God came are referred to as gods, as explained in John 10. 
metaphors tend to die over time. So initially, I think probably the sportscaster who used the term Hail Mary Pass was using a very vivid metaphor for, you know, kind of a desperate throw towards the end zone as the clock is running out. You know, it's as if it's a prayer. It's like a Catholic throwing up a prayer to Mary. And that's a very vivid metaphor. But now when sportscasters talk about Hail Mary passes, it just means, you know, a big throw for the touchdown at the end of the game, you know, like a desperate attempt. It doesn't really evoke any comparison to praying anymore. So it's what grammarians call a dead metaphor. A football fan nowadays will understand the phrase Hail Mary, even if they literally have never heard about the Catholic Hail Mary prayer. Right, so in ancient times, if you called the king, oh God, maybe at some point that was hyperbolic or metaphorical. But I think by the time you get to the New Testament, they're just like, yeah, that's one meaning that the word God can have. So I don't think that helps his case. And I don't think that transforms his two sentences into something about a tripersonal God. Dr. Craig has work to do if he's going to show how his two sentences imply something about a tripersonal God. Either that, or I think the more recommended route would be add something to those two sentences. But of course, if he does that, it's going to be hard to get that extra thing out of the New Testament. That's why he doesn't want to do it. Okay, so here's the rest of that clip, that exchange from the conference session. People that want to defend a doctrine of the Trinity just mean, Dr. Craig, a creedal doctrine. You punt on that as soon as the book starts. I'm not defending a creedal doctrine. Right. You have those that ultra-minimalistic two sentences. Yes. It doesn't even, you don't even name the Father, Son, and Spirit. You don't even mention a tripersonal God. Like, that's mighty thin soup. Well, what I... I can see how you think that might be in, in the New Testament, but most people wouldn't count, most Trinitarians wouldn't count that as a doctrine of the Trinity. Well, I guess that remains to be seen. I think that they probably would. Yes, indeed. That will be interesting to see when the book is reviewed and commented on by others. And I can't help but notice that when Dr. Craig introduces his minimal biblical theory near the start of the first of these two episodes, he actually adds in a little bit to avoid the criticism I just made. Can you hear it? I then defend what I call the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, which is very simply stated that there is exactly one God and that there are exactly three persons who are properly called God. That is to say, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom is literally and truly God. Right, yeah. It would seem important to mention which three persons it is which are properly called God, not to just say there are three, whichever they are. Okay, now we're going to get to an exchange where things get a bit unclear. And honestly, I think Dr. Craig isn't quite remembering how the argument in the book went. But here's an introduction to this topic from that session audio. But in any case, with regard to Doctrine T, why do you say that all of your book's interlocutors disavow T rather than say, all agree that I have misformulated T? Which is what we all said, that you set up a straw man. Right. Again, T was that the New Testament authors assumed that the one God just is the Trinity and that the Son and Spirit are each fully divine. Now, I didn't misformulate it because it's my thesis, and I formulated it just like I wanted to, and I formulated it that way because I think that most Trinitarian scholars will agree that the New Testament authors assumed these things. And so, this is part of the contents that are implied in the New Testament. And I made the point toward the end of this book that none of the three Trinitarians in this book agrees with that, which puts them quite far out of the mainstream, for good reasons. What my three interlocutors said is, so I'm comparing two explanations uh, as regards those 20 facts, which I think are facts. Dr. Craig gets off the bus with some of them. Dr. Craig, you suggest that a better explanation is what you have, like T-star. Yes. This is your minimal theory, and that just doesn't explain most of the facts that I'm pointing at. And what I should have said there is that in his reply to me, Dr. Craig urged that what explains those facts is that the New Testament authors assumed his two sentences. Again, 
this is one of these statements in Tuggy's closing statement of the book where I think he really misrepresents what the other members of the book are saying. Nope. He proposes a doctrine he calls T as the doctrine of the Trinity. Nope. And as he states it, this is the conjunction of three claims about the New Testament authors. First, that they assume the numerical identity of the one God with the Trinity. Second, they assume the full deity of the Son. And thirdly, they assume the full deity of the Holy Spirit. And that doctrine, T, is a misrepresentation of what Trinitarians believe. It's a straw man. And all three of us in the book say, well, that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity states. Wow. Okay. Where to even start with that quote? My goodness. So it's false that I defined T as the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, I don't think there is one doctrine, as I already explained. T is supposed to be an explanation of what we find and don't find in the New Testament. It's a hypothesis about some of what the authors are assuming. So any Trinitarian who is committed to a creedal-type doctrine of the Trinity, something equivalent to that being implied by New Testament Scripture, is thereby committed to T about those authors. And my argument in the book is that there are 20 facts, or really there are sets of facts in most cases. Uh, in each case, those facts confirm U over T. So those facts would be surprising if T were true, and the facts would be either unsurprising or expected if U were true. And so that's why that set of facts confirms U over T. This wasn't an argument about the definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. You can just see from reading the book that there are several such doctrines put into play. Now, nowhere in the book was I accused of arguing against a straw man or of just simply, you know, willfully or ignorantly misrepresenting, quote, what Trinitarians believe. Now, I don't think Dr. Craig is lying here. I think he's just talking on the fly. I don't think he's remembering very clearly. That wasn't an argument in the book. The disagreement in the book regarding T and U was the other Trinitarians wanted to say, hey, why should I, as a Trinitarian, be committed to T as an explanation of what is found and not found in the New Testament texts? And the point I made back was, look, there's an army of apologists and systematic theologians claiming that some Trinity doctrine is obviously implied by Scripture. Well, if that's true, then they would also be committed to T. To give you a flavor of the actual disagreement that was actually in the book, let me read you a little passage from Dr. William Hasker's reply to my opening chapter. The, quote, Trinitarian hypothesis, T, represents an extreme position that no reasonable, well-informed Trinitarian will endorse. Hypothesis T for Trinitarian is the conjunction of three claims about the New Testament authors— that they assume the numerical identity of the one God with the Trinity, the full deity of the Son, and the full deity of the Holy Spirit. This comes very close to attributing to the New Testament authors, all of them, question mark, the fully developed Nicene doctrine of the Trinity. But on Tuggy's own accounting, the identity of the one God with the Trinity was not accepted until late in the 4th century. If we were to assume that the New Testament authors already accepted Nicene Trinitarianism, we might well expect them to have said things differently than what we actually find in the New Testament writings. So it's completely unsurprising that this assumption has very low predictive power, maybe he should say explanatory power, with respect to various features of those writings. On the other hand, it will be very hard, likely impossible, to find among intelligent, well-informed contemporary Trinitarians anyone who embraces hypothesis T. Frankly, it's hard to understand why Tuggy thought it worth his while to refute a hypothesis when the refutation will affect only a vanishingly small proportion of his opponents. Well, my answer to that is Trinitarians like Craig and Hasker and Branson are a vanishingly small proportion of Trinitarians, most of whom, and by this I'm talking about scholars, seminary graduates, people with masters and PhDs, most of these Trinitarians think that the doctrine of the Trinity is rather obviously implied in the New Testament, in which case T 
would be true because the New Testament authors would be assuming those things. However, there seems to be massive disconfirmation of T based on the New Testament evidence. So no, there was no argument in the book about Tuggy just doesn't understand, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity and is just attacking a straw man the whole time. It's not that. It was that they wanted to put some other thesis up against you instead of my T. In other words, they wanted to put forward some other explanation of the cited facts that has to do with the assumptions of the New Testament authors, an explanation which they hope will better explain those facts than either T or U. Hasker's kind of vague about it. Craig offers that the New Testament authors believe his two sentences, and Branson offers that they believe his so-called monarchical Trinitarianism. When the Trinity's podcast returns... What I consider to be the low point of Craig's recent response episodes. Now, this brings me to the low point, I think, of these two episodes. And so my formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity is, I think, much simpler and much more biblical. Namely, there's exactly one God and there are exactly three persons who are properly called God. And that formulation explains the 20 facts listed by Tuggy far better than does his Unitarian hypothesis. 20 facts? What? What is he talking about? What 20 facts? Well, seemingly Dr. Craig and his host, Kevin Harris, do not want their audience to know. But what he just said is extremely odd for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that he denies some of the facts in the book. He doesn't say that they are facts, but he has a better explanation. He denies some of them, which is wrongheaded. It's very unconvincing. I don't think he should. I think he's better off to just admit that they're facts and then go from there. So is he just speaking off the cuff? He just doesn't remember that in the book he denies some of the facts? Or on further reflection, has he changed his mind? So now that he agrees that they're facts and he just wants to move on to dispute about the explanation of them, I don't know. I guess I'm guessing it's the first, but I could be wrong. But now, when he says that his biblical theory better explains the facts, this is not the best bill, to put it nicely. This is not a serious statement. That it explains my 20 facts if the New Testament authors assumed his two sentences. Namely, that there is one God, and that the word God is properly applied to each of three persons. And what are those facts? Well, I'm not going to take time to go through all 20 of them. You can read the book chapter for that. But what I will do is present to you the five facts that I mentioned in this book session. So these are the five facts that Dr. Craig has chosen to hide from his podcast audience. The first fact is that there is no New Testament Trinity passage, no text in which the view that the one God is the Trinity is clearly asserted, implied, or assumed. This is shocking if the authors are Trinitarians, that is to say, believers in a tripersonal God, but it's expected if they think the one God just is the Father alone. So, this undeniable fact supports the hypothesis that these authors think the one God is the Father over the hypothesis that they think the one God is the Trinity. Now, is this fact that there is no New Testament Trinity passage which communicates that the one God is the Trinity or that the one God is triune? Is this fact actually explained if the New Testament authors assume there is one God and that there are three persons, each of whom is properly called God? I mean, if this is meaning to say that the New Testament authors aren't Trinitarians, but they only think this, then arguably 
that would explain the facts in question. But as we just heard, Dr. Craig seems to think that there's some tripersonal God idea communicated by those two sentences. So how would the New Testament authors, assuming that, explain the lack of any Trinity passage in the New Testament? I just don't see that it does at all. The second fact is that no New Testament word or phrase was at that time understood to refer to a tripersonal God. All right, they didn't have the words we translate as Trinity, but of course, a Trinitarian doesn't have to call her triune God the Trinity. She can just coin a new use of the term God so that it refers to the Trinity, like we see in Augustine. Right, but we'd be shocked if Trinitarian authors had no word or phrase by which to refer to the triune God. Okay, but the New Testament authors didn't have any such word or phrase. That's expected if for them the one God is, as they say, the Father. It's surprising if they think the one God is the triune God. And so this fact seems to confirm U over T. Craig says, no, I have a better explanation. It's that the New Testament authors assume that there is one God and that there are three persons, each of which is properly called God. Now, does this explain the fact that there is no New Testament word or phrase, which was at that time understood to refer to a tripersonal God? How? How would it explain that? Especially if that's supposed to involve belief in a tripersonal God. He's just waving his hands and saying, my explanation's better, while conveniently not mentioning the facts to be explained. The third fact is that the New Testament explicitly says that the Father is Jesus' God. This implies that the Father is a God, of course the only God, but then the only God can't be the Trinity. The monotheistic God is necessarily top-level. Either he exists alone, or he freely creates other beings who are subject to him, those are all the possibilities. That at least six New Testament authors say the Father is Jesus' God is shocking if they're Trinitarians, as Trinitarians urge that Jesus is fully divine and or a God, both of which seem to rule out being under God. But this fact is expected if the authors are Unitarians. So this fact seems to confirm U over T. Now, would Craig come along and say, fooey on U and T? The better explanation of that fact is that these authors assume that there's only one God and that there are three persons, each of which is properly called God. How would that explain that the New Testament explicitly says that the Father is Jesus' God? I don't know. I don't think he does either. The fourth fact is the New Testament use of the word God. Let's concede for sake of argument that eight times in the New Testament, Theos refers to Jesus, and perhaps a couple of times to God's Spirit. But it's an undeniable fact that more than 99% of the uses of Theos in these books refer to the Father. And according to the lexicons and the textual scholars, Theos in the New Testament never refers to the Trinity. This pattern of usage, almost always the Father, extremely rarely God's Son or Spirit, Never the Trinity is very surprising if these authors assume God to be the Trinity, but it's either unsurprising or far less surprising if they think the one God just is the Father. So again, this fact confirms U over T. Now, if Craig wants to come along and say fooey on U and T, here's a better explanation. These New Testament authors assume that there's one God and there are three persons, each of which is properly referred to as God. How does that explain the New Testament pattern of the usage of the word God, that is, theos? Why is it mostly for the Father? Does it explain that? Why is it never for the Trinity? Does it explain that? I don't think it does. The fifth fact is the New Testament pattern of worship. The Trinitarian worships God the Trinity and also each of the divine persons. But in the New Testament, the Trinity is never an object of worship, neither is the Holy Spirit. And there, the main and ultimate object of worship is the Father, whom we approach through Christ. And there's no attempt to spread around the worship equally between the three. 
Now Jesus, especially after his exaltation, is worshipped too, but the reason cited for this is not his divine nature, but rather his exaltation by God, because of his perfect self-sacrificing service to God. And this worship of Jesus is explicitly said to be to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. One would not expect God to be worshipped to the glory of someone above him. This pattern of worship is shocking if these authors are Trinitarians, but it's far less surprising if they think the one God is the Father. Thus again, confirmation for U over T. Now, if Dr. Craig wants to come along and say, fui on U and T, the better explanation of the New Testament pattern of worship is the New Testament authors assume there's one God and there are three persons, each of which is properly called God. I just don't see how that explains the New Testament pattern of worship at all. I don't think he knows how it does either. This is why he wasn't speaking seriously just now. Dr. Craig is a brilliant and deeply learned man, and he knows how to weigh rival explanations against one another. But when it comes to explaining those five facts, his suggested rival explanation seems perfectly useless. It is, in fact, not a contender against you. To be that, it would have to actually explain the facts if it were true. So again, I discuss 15 more facts than those in my opening statement in the forthcoming debate book. Like I said, we're not getting the best Craig here. The best Craig, I think, would have a lot more to say, and it would be more plausible. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is the doctrine of the Trinity unproblematic? If statements like the Father is God and the Son is God are predications and not identity statements? Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is unproblematic unless you interpret statements like the Father is God as an identity statement rather than as a predication of deity. Now, this is just demonstrably false. Here is precisely how, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, end quote, is problematic even if you don't interpret the is God statements as identity statements. Any Trinity doctrine includes the denial of the identity of the three persons. In other words, the Father is different than the Son, the Son's different than the Spirit, the Father is different from the Spirit. Those really are three. You can't collapse together any of them. Okay. Each one of those, according to tradition, has the divine essence. The divine essence is supposed to be everything that makes a God a God. Each of them has that. So on the face of that, each of them is a God. And since they're not identical, it doesn't look like they can be the same God. So, sorry, but the doctrine of the Trinity still is problematic, even if you don't interpret the is-God statements as identity claims. Now, the way Dr. Craig gets around this problem that I just mentioned is he goes against small-c Catholic traditions. He denies that any of the persons of the Trinity is a God. So, none of them are divine in the highest sense. The only thing that's divine in the highest sense, he says, is the Trinity. The persons have this divine person deity or divinity, which is something less. It doesn't imply being a god. Of course, Catholic tradition says the Father is God in the highest sense and that Jesus is God in that same sense, and so is the Holy Spirit. That's why some Trinitarians say each one is a god, but they're just the same god, even though they're different persons. That's the whole realm of relative identity trinity theories. Craig's not on board with that. Fine. But there's also this New Testament problem that it's quite explicit that the Father is Jesus' God, 
which implies that the Father is a God, which just by the theory of natures tells you that the Father has divine nature in the highest sense, the being a God sense. Again, if he's the Son's God, he has to be a God. If he's a God, he has to have divinity in the primary or the highest sense, which entails being a God. So Craig is just going straight against the New Testament when he denies that the Father is a God. He hasn't yet grappled with this problem for his Trinitarian theorizing. But maybe he will someday. But here, unfortunately, it's going to ignore the clear text I just mentioned, which the Father is said to be Jesus as God. And then in order to prop up his Trinity theory, such as it is, he's going to use an unclear text to expound a clear text. Clear text here is John 17, 1 through 3. The unclear text is 1 John 5.20. There, even many Trinitarian interpreters don't think that Jesus is referred to as true God. Some do, some don't. It's an area of disagreement. The grammar is vague. I think you can make a strong argument that John is not calling Jesus true God there. I'll say that in a minute. Of course, in this book, Dr. Craig takes a crack at proving that, no, no, he's got to be referring to Jesus there, you know, just based on grammatical considerations and the like. Okay, so here he is interpreting a clear text using an unclear text. And we have every reason to think that the New Testament authors were not making identity statements. For example, John says that the Father is the only true God, John 17, 3. But he also says that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.20. Now, if these were identity statements, then the transitivity of identity would imply that Jesus Christ is the Father, which John would have vigorously repudiated. So these are not identity statements. These are predications of deity and therefore are logically unproblematic. Now go back to the clear text. In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus clearly presupposes that the one God and the Father are one and the same. That's why Jesus prays to the Father and says that he is the only true God. Right? If the Father, who is just referred to, is the only true God, then no one else is. That's what only means. There's a universal quantification here. That in itself is a reason to think that John in 1 John 5 doesn't refer to Jesus using the phrase true God, because Jesus is the Son. He thinks the Father is the only true God. If the Father is the only true God, then no one else is. Well, the Son is someone else than the Father, someone in addition to the Father, so then he must not be true God. If John is consistent, then he's probably not calling Jesus true God here. So, Craig is relying on his contentious, doubtful arguments that surely John must be calling Jesus true God in the unclear text, and then he's using that to twist the clear text so that now it's not a quantification, there's no universal quantifier there. In his view, it can't be analyzed as, for anything whatsoever, it's true God, only if it just is the Father. Nope, that's wrong. I guess to say the Father is the only true God is just to attribute this feature to the Father, only true God. There's no quantification anymore. It's just the adjective, only true God. And I guess the Son is also only true God? Okay, but that's just twisting the clear meaning of the text. Unitarianism stands or falls with this assumption that the New Testament authors are making identity statements rather than predicating statements. Nope. Again, Unitarian Christian views don't depend on finding assertions that the one God just is the Father everywhere the Father is referred to as God. What it requires is the underlying assumption that the one God and the Father are one and the same which is something that's very easy to see in the whole New Testament. And there's a lot of different sorts of confirmation of it, such as the way they use the word God, such as the way they swap out words for God for stylistic reasons, etc. Scripturally speaking, I think that the New Testament teaches that there's only one God and that there are exactly three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are properly called God. Philosophically, I think this makes perfect sense 
to think of God as an immaterial, spiritual, tripersonal substance. And so the view that I defend in the book, I call tripersonal monotheism. And it seems to me that that is a perfectly uh, coherent formulation or model for understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. So we've carried on at some length as if the doctrine of the Trinity is some one thing. And then now, just like in the book, he gives two different accounts and says each one is the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Now, I guess they seem consistent with one another. I think you could consistently hold his view that he's referring to here with his minimal biblical view. But they are two different views, and one could hold one without holding the other. The biblical view doesn't require his speculations about God being a soul with three different complete sets of cognitive faculties. And you could hold to that theory of a soul with the cognitive faculties, and you could deny what he calls the biblical view. So they really are two accounts. That one is supposed to count as an exposition or an enhancement of, of the other. I mean, there's still two, right? Again, you can consistently accept the first and deny the second, or you can accept the second and deny the first. But unaccountably, Dr. Craig is carrying on as if he's presented just one theology here. I don't get it. If you want to say one or the other, okay, that would make sense. But they're not saying the same thing. They're not the same theory. They're not the same theology. To just label one as biblical and the other as philosophical, okay, but they're still both theological, right? So is it really an either or? Is it a both and? And of course, he merrily ignores the serious problems I pointed out for this one soul, three cognitive faculties speculation. You'll have to see the book for that. Okay, to sum up, we're not getting the best Craig here. You've got contentious, polemical descriptions of my views. You've got subject changing from the Trinity to the deity of Christ and from a more generic Unitarian position to the more specific biblical Unitarian position, which also addresses Christological issues, not just who the one God is. You've got a failure to engage with my views on John 1 and many other relevant texts. You've got, unfortunately, some non-serious claims about what he's able to explain with his hypothesis that the New Testament authors assumed his minimal two sentences. And you've got Dr. Craig seemingly hiding my arguments from his audience, and with this whole kind of kook and extreme angle, giving them an excuse to ignore two decades of work on this topic, including publishing peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on these topics. And finally, we're conveniently ignoring the obvious contradictions between divinity and humanity and my published critique of Dr. Craig's attempt to show that the concept of a God-man isn't like the concept of a square circle. Now, as I said at the outset, I'm not a judgmental guy. I very well know that often people in my life don't get the best ale. I don't blame Dr. Craig. He's carrying an incredibly heavy intellectual load in recent months. But this, I would like to say to Dr. Craig, with all due respect, Sir, I think you need to give these topics your full attention and the full debate treatment. So I'd like to challenge you to a full-length, face-to-face debate. You pick the topic. Here are some suggestions, and in each one, you get to be the positive side, so you would go first. Topic number one, the New Testament teaches that the one God is tripersonal. That'd be a good one to debate. Topic number two, The Gospel according to John teaches that Jesus and the Father are equally divine. Topic number three. The Chalcedonian doctrine of a divine and human Jesus is coherent. Topic number four. The New Testament teaches that Jesus and the Father are equally divine. Out of those four, I would suggest that the fourth is maybe the most appropriate as the deity of Christ is more fundamental to your concerns and to evangelical concerns. And really it's more fundamental, I think, to small C Catholic traditions, but I'd be willing to debate any of those four topics or make a suggestion for your convenience. Why not the Atlanta area? Why not your home church or some other venue in greater Atlanta? 
I know some folks down there. I bet I could help with that. How about, say, between Christmas and New Year's? So the very end of 2024. This would give adequate time for debate prep, which, as I know, is a months-long and kind of grueling process. That's really where all the work of debating is put in, is in the prep. I don't think I'm as good a debater as is Dr. William Lane Craig. He's got far more experience and I just think far better basic debate skills. And as you've heard in these episodes, I'm not always the best thinking on my feet, thinking on the spot. Still, I think this would be a useful exercise. I know that in the past, Dr. Craig, you've preferred to stay away from inter-Christian topics, of which this is one, although you don't construe it that way. But I would humbly suggest that our interactions so far have not really got to the heart of the matter in many different ways, as I've described. The word limits were just too constraining in the debate book, and the very short time span in the recent conference session was just too short for both of us. I don't know about you, but I went into there with about a dozen questions for you, and I only had time for, I think it was three. We could have done that for an hour and a half, and I'm sure you had a lot of questions for me as well, which would have been interesting. But yeah, about debating inter-Christian topics rather than, you know, concerns raised by atheists and agnostics, I would suggest that it would be an appropriate time to do it, Dr. Craig, as you are in the process of writing and publishing your magnum opus, Systematic Theology. Maybe the best time to do these is coming right up. Anyway, let me know. You've got one of my emails. If we do this, I'll try to bring the best Dale... And I'm sure, based on your past debates, that you will bring the best, Dr. William Lane Craig. This week's Thinking Music has been the track High as Hats by Van Loon. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.